Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. In 2012, groups of researchers at both the University of California and MIT developed a gene editing technology that has come to be known as CRISPR. Since that time, there has been an ongoing fight over which of these researchers and their universities owns the patent rights to this technology. Despite that dispute, over the past 10 years, companies have been developing new technologies and products that use CRISPR. These technologies and products do everything from curing diseases to improving agriculture. The potential future applications are nearly limitless. Yet, we still have unanswered questions about ownership of the underlying intellectual property rights. How can companies innovate and develop new products when they don't know who owns the IP rights that they're using, or whether there even is IP that they need to license? Our guest today is Samantha Zients. I am a professor currently at BU Law. I teach intellectual property, uh, and I'm also a lecturer at Questrom School for Business at BU. So I have a nice opportunity to kind of teach both law and business, and so a lot of my research works on both of those levels. In today's episode, we're going to look at these issues and try to unpack the gene editing innovation landscape. So we're talking about CRISPR. Uh, let's actually start with CRISPR, and then I'll ask you a little bit more about your background. But can, can you explain briefly what is CRISPR? Sure, absolutely. So CRISPR itself is uh, still a rather new uh, DNA editing technology um, that was first introduced in June 2012. And we've gone from, gee, what an oddity to, oh, hey, it won a Nobel Prize. Um, it is allowing in a couple of years. That's pretty impressive. In less than ten. Yep. So the Nobel was awarded to uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier in uh, 2020. You know, so it's it's made this massive jump, and you know it's important because uh, it now starts showing up in entertainment. So there's a wonderful movie. Uh, well, maybe not so wonderful, but there's a movie starring <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson, where the core uh, plot device is rampaging animals that were CRISPR edited, which made them larger than they should be and angry, <laughs> apparently. But, you know, we go from amazing to dystopian sci-fi here really fast. Uh, <laughs> and I don't blame them, right? Because what we've done is we've introduced a tool that allows us to more easily, cheaply, and accurately edit our own DNA and DNA of most anything else so far than we've ever been able to before. Mm -hmm. And this means everything from, hey, I can create new models for mice for us to study cancer to Vertex now is actually creating a cure for sickle cell anemia using, using CRISPR. Mm -hmm. And yes... We can edit embryos of humans. Mm -hmm. So really, really powerful tool. Absolutely. That's the, the background for our discussion today, but we're going to be building on the topic of CRISPR to talk about the intellectual property patents and the innovation landscape surrounding CRISPR, which uh, leads me to a little bit more about your background. So you are 
not a geneticist or biologist. You are a different-ist. You're an economist. <laughs> I am an economist, yes. Um, so, no, this is one of those weird things where sometimes when uh, you get interested in lots of different topics, you realize, oh, in order for me to really understand this, I'm going to become a scientist today, and I'm going to rely on expertise from other people. But the reason I got interested in this is, is I am an economist, but what I'm really interested in is innovation. Right? And there are lots of different ways to think about innovation, both from a legal side, you know, when we talk about, oh, you know, patents, right? Everybody thinks about law, but patents are also for businesses strategic assets, right? And so what we want to understand is, is how does the law interact with business? And one of the best places I always think to do that is in innovation, right? So as an economist, I get to say, all right, you know, what are the incentives that actually drive people to innovate? How do these systems work? Uh, what kinds of people are involved? How does the law interact with, you know, actual creation? And so this is that that's a lot of what the paper is that we're going to talk about today. Right. So if you could just start with a very brief explanation, not about CRISPR, but about patents um, and what patents are and possibly uh, also just a really brief explanation about how patent law changed around the time of the CRISPR innovation because th this is important to get some statement of what patent law is correct since there was a big change around the time. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so you know, the easiest way to just sort of describe a patent is basically a, a deal that inventors make with the U.S. government that basically says, hey, we will give you a form of exclusivity over what you have invented based on a document that you write. And the document has to describe in detail how you did it and how it works. And that way, basically the quid pro quo is, we will give you some room and some exclusivity to make money on your idea for being able to disclose how you've done it to the rest of rest of the United States, to the rest of the world, the rest of the innovating community. And the reason that's important is because it allows other innovators to kind of see what has already been taken in that space and either allows them to license from you or to say, hey, I have a different way of doing this. And it encourages innovation in, slight, in a slightly different way. Sometimes we call that a design around. Mm -hmm. Now, the patents themselves haven't exactly changed. Uh, you still, you know, get exclusivity and you still, you know, have to tell people what you did for the rights to that exclusivity. But in around 2011, uh, we did change the law. It's called the American Invents Act. And it took effect in March of 2013. And this is kind of important because the major, major thing that changed and there are many things that did, but the big one was the U.S. system used to be what we call first to invent. So it basically meant that if you could prove that you were the first person to have done that invention, you have rights to it. You were the mm -hmm. one who are gonna, who's going to get the exclusivity. You're the one who's going to get the patent, and you will determine what's called priority. So you and I, we both invent something, the exact same thing or similar enough things that they would exclude the other from getting a patent. You invent it two months ago. I invent it this month. I fill out the paperwork more quickly than you, and I go to the patent office. You would still be able to go to the patent office and say, no, no, I invented this first. I can prove it. Yes, as long as I can prove it. So that's what the law was. Yes, 
Absolutely. And, and I'd have to fight it, obviously. But mm. and we'll talk about how we do that. And so, yes, that's kind of what it used to be. It said, hey, you know, like, it forced people to sort of race to the patent office, right? It's, mm. it's like and prove to them that I am the inventor to this and we're, you know, uh, I can exclude other people. The big change that the American Invents Act did was we moved to sort of the way the rest of the world works. We were the only folks who were really doing first to invent. And that was causing confusion worldwide because, you know, you'd get a patent in Europe and, and patent in Europe, it, they have a first to file rule. So it's the first person who got to the patent office, regardless of whether you were the first one to invent. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're the first one to file, that's your patent, right? And we're kind of done. The U.S. wasn't like that. So somebody trying to protect their innovation in Europe and the U.S. was struck with these two very different regimes. Mm -hmm. And so part of the AIA was to try to harmonize this. So we moved to a first file regime. But again, that took effect mid-March 2013. Right. (laughs) And if I'm remembering, you said something about CRISPR 2012. Yeah. So here's a funny story. So CRISPR was uh, first published in June 2012 by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, the two ladies who won the Nobel. And first of all, you know, yay women in science winning a Nobel (laughs) by themselves. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of those. So I'm all for this. Uh, And they, as all good scientists should do, put in an application before they publish their paper. Mm-hmm. Right. And so their application went into the patent office right before they published. Uh, around the same time, folks from MIT uh, and Harvard uh, and the Broad Institute, who, which, is also in Cam- which is also in Cambridge, also created a form of CRISPR that's mm-hmm. a little different from, from Jennifer Doudna's and her company. But, you know, it was basically simultaneous invention, which mm-hmm. happens. This happens a lot. We saw yep. this with the with cell phone, in fact. Mm-hmm. Right. And so... They then published a paper six months later. They also had an application in right before the paper, but after Doudna's. Yet, MIT was actually able to get their granted patent first. Okay, this causes a mess. All of the applications, though, were put in before that magic March 2013 date, Mm -hmm. which puts us grandfathered in into this realm of first to invent. Right. Yay. <laughs> so so what, what have uh, the last, since this is the setting for uh, our discussion today, what, what have the last 10 years been like for the fine folks and universities associated with CRISPR? Everybody's got a headache, I think. <laughs> at, least, at least the folks were fighting over ownership, because that's really what's going on now, is because we have this first to invent, the first thing we had to ask was, all right, who's, you know, who's the first to invent CRISPR in general? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, Jennifer Doudna and, and, and the folks at uh, Berkeley say, no, we we were. We have the first paper. We have the first application. And, you know, we showed it works in bacteria. Mm-hmm. That should be enough. The folks at MIT say, well, we'll give you that. But, you know, we developed it for mammals. This is different. It's not obvious mm-hmm. how to go from bacteria to mammals. And actually, in fairness, I have some research that may back that statement up. But that's what we're arguing about. And so no one actually knows, all right, who's the first person to, like, own CRISPR? Are these patents actually going to hold? But these are the core we're building off of. Everybody. And this started in early 2014. We are still fighting this. Yeah. The last appeal just started in March 2022. Mm -hmm. And so... Throughout this entire time, 
People have been trying to figure out how to build and work with the CRISPR technology without actually knowing, is there a patent? Or am I going to have to, are there going to be two? Is there going to be one? Who should I license from? And it's just kind of created a bit of a morass. Uh, a, let, let's say a bit more about a morass for whom. So <laughs> if, I, if I'm a, a researcher developing some technology that would use CRISPR, I'm thinking, hey, this is a potentially commercializable technology. I have spoken to my patent lawyers, or I, I just generally know if I'm going to be using someone else's technology and it's patented, I need to get their permission to do it. What am I going to do? Well, if you're a peer researcher at a university or a research organization, I have good news. Both Broad and MIT and the UC have all said, if you're just using this for research purposes, you're free and clear. Mm -hmm. Just go for it. We want you to experiment it with, with it. We want you to use it. We want it out there, right? We want you to build on this because it's such an important innovation. The problem is when we get to commercialization, which is actually a fairly new phenomenon. So, you know, you have to have a lot of experimentation, a lot of testing with CRISPR before we're ever going to get like actual usable medicines, before we get agriculture we're going to sell to the population and the public. But those are the places where, yes, the universities who've developed these technologies are going to say, hey, I deserve some money, <laughs> right? And if you're making money, I want a piece of it. And so it's for the commercial side where this starts to get a little ugly. Because, again, if you build on it, it's not completely clear who I need licenses from, if I'm going to need a license, and how to even negotiate it. Because at the moment, these two sides kind of don't like each other and aren't really easily licensing you know, uh, both their portfolios to the same person. Mm -hmm. Not saying that they won't, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of touched on this a moment ago. Are the UC and MIT inventions the same. And what I have in mind in asking that is, are they substitutes for each other such that if they both were to receive patents, they would be competing with each other? So I'm, I'm commercializing some technology and I could use either of these technologies and uh, the two groups will be competing with each other. Competition tends to lower prices versus if I can only use one of them, I have to go to MIT or UC, and they can charge a much higher uh, monopoly level rent. So sadly, they're not competing. It's basically the vast majority of commercializable products are going to be based off of what we call mammalian CRISPR. And that's actually sort of the secondary issue we're arguing is it UC or MIT who actually developed and what we call reduced practice, i.e. make work, the mammalian CRISPR version, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got a commercializable product, you're probably going to need a license to that. Again, little unclear who owns it, mm -hmm. right? Um, however, we're not done there. It actually could be that they're stacked, right? So you may need, you may need actually both mm -hmm. because the, the Berkeley patent is a lot broader, right? So it tells you how to use the tool. And so if you are using the tool in, you know, for very specifically what we call CAS9 CRISPR, it's the first tool that was ever built um, that a lot of people still work with, then, yeah, you might need both. And the problem is we don't exactly know. So I've actually gotten a number of companies who've asked me, are, are we going to need to license both? Should we just do it? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's going to come down to what 
is being decided both at the PTAB, which is at the patent office, who's hearing all of these cases, um, and the Federal Court of Appeals. So um, I'm just thinking, my putting my advising a company hat on, telling them, this is what you need to do, and this is such a mess. It's trying a mess. <laughs> to, I mean, this, this is really important innovation that's been enabled by these developments. You You have to license it in order to commercialize, but you don't know who to license it from. Can you get a license from these groups that's conditional upon them getting uh, the patent? What, what, what are companies actually doing? So at the moment, I haven't actually seen any licenses that are conditional, though that would kind of be a good idea. Uh, th there is sort of that element of, you know, Berkeley, uh, the Berkeley and MIT as organizations are really uncomfortable with the idea of both licensing easily because then, you know, it sort of makes their arguments at court harder. Mm -hmm. Right. If we're going to just do this all together and, you know, kumbaya, why are we here fighting? Mm -hmm. Which... I kind of agree with that. Why are we fighting this anymore? And there's a good reason to ask that question. I think the first is a lot of companies have started to get a little frustrated with this. Mm -hmm. And remember, I said, this is basically over what we call CAS9 CRISPR. CRISPR itself is basically at its simplest two pieces, right? It's a, it's a, a strand of RNA called a guide RNA. So it's just a set of uh, letters that indicate a gene that we want to look for and an enzyme which, you know, usually is a pair of molecular scissors in the case of Cas9. The patents themselves, and remember I said patents are only for the things that you can, that you actually claim. These are exactly how it works and what I mean. And that's all you get. Both of these patents are written sort of for Cas9, and that's it. And so what many companies have been doing is saying, are there alternatives, right? I can still create a CRISPR, usable CRISPR tool, both for mammals and for anything else, mm -hmm. without using Cas9. The minute I do that, I'm not infringing this patent. I don't care about a license. We can just move on. Mm -hmm. So some new companies are doing that. So there are alternatives that folks have been discovering to the original Cas9 CRISPR Absolutely. in the intervening years. Do they work as well? Do they work the same way? Why are they not covered by those original patents? So some of the new some of the new enzymes do work the same way. One of the most recent ones uh, they found actually might even be better than Cas9, um, which yay for everybody. <laughs> um, you know, it it again acts like a pair of molecular scissors. It will cut out the gene you tell it to cut out, but it also happens to be a lot smaller, which is really good news. Uh, molecularly for people trying to get the CRISPR system into the nucleus of a cell, which, by the way, is not the easiest thing to do, mm -hmm. right? Which is why it's easier to do this in bacteria than it is in mammals. Others work a little bit differently, but they're still CRISPR. And so there are, there are ways around this. Uh, some people are stuck with Cas9, though. There's such an important, just practical lesson right there. Some companies might be stuck with Cas9. We can touch uh, on, on those companies in a moment. But in the time that UC and MIT have been fighting over the ownership of this patent, alternates to the patent have been developed. And probably because of the fighting, they've been developed. They wouldn't have otherwise uh, been developed, at least not as quickly. And you'd probably have a lot more companies that were using Cas9. So the, the entire reason that they're fighting over ownership of the patent is because they want the money. Oh, yeah. 
So and, 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 <laughs> we, as a, we already got the credit. So this is the amazing thing is I actually thought this would be done and in 2020, mm-hmm. right? Because part of this was signaling. I am the first to invent this. Of course, I should get the Nobel. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen instances where, you know, there is simultaneous invention and, you know, one group gets uh, gets a patent and another group, you know, gets the Nobel and everybody's mm-hmm. happy. <laughs> yep. Right. I really thought it was going to work this way. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't. You know, they got the credit. Move on. But no, no, this is about the money. And again, we're talking about easily, you know, an 80 plus billion market mm-hmm. going forward. Right. We're talking about literally saving hundreds of thousands of lives, potentially, with gene therapies. We're talking about creating drought and blight-resistant crops mm-hmm. with higher yields for a population that's ever-growing, mm-hmm. right? This is not a joke. And so, you know, when they started, and, and you know, to go back to a question you asked about, like, you know, why were they only dealing in Cas9? Well, when we first started this, that's all we, all we really thought there was, right? CRISPR moved so fast that the discovery was from bacteria. This is what they do naturally to protect themselves from viruses. This is a thing that exists in nature, and the reason we can get a patent on it is because Jennifer Doudna proved that it was modifiable. We had control over it. No one knew that, and it became a tool in that instance, right? But at that point, Cas9 was what we thought there was. So we couldn't write a patent for potential Cas's that you know, bacteria weren't using Mm -hmm. in the same way. And we hadn't really thought about it in that sense. And if you can't like kind of show that, yes, this CAS, you know, a a different enzyme, a different CAS would work the same way as CAS9, you're not going to convince any patent examiner to give you that patent. And we wanted those out, right? So the narrower you can write the patents, the better you do. And so that's how we got there. And a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon. So Vertex, who's, who is creating this cure for sickle cell anemia, is using Cas9 because that's what was there. Means, though, they got a little locked in. You want to be first, um, especially if you're developing a therapy or a medicine. Well, you've got to go through the, the FDA process. Mm-hmm. The minute you go change you know, anything about that therapeutic, you're going to have to start over again. This is not worth it. Right. And so people like Vertex are a little uncomfortable. At this point, because, you know, yes, they actually have a license to what is currently determined to be mammalian CRISPR. They have a license for MIT Broad. Whether they need the rest of the Berkeley portfolio, little unclear. And so, they're, you know, they're, competitive-wise, they're going to stick with this, but maybe they're going to try to get the license later when they actually, like, have something to sell. But at the moment, I think they're kind of just not worrying about it and, and moving forward because that's, all, that's the only choice we've got. <laughs> yep. So let, let's uh, change gears slightly. In your recent work studying CRISPR, one of the things that you have focused on in particular is company strategies, how they have attempted to innovate in light of this uncertainty. And I wonder if you can describe some of this work, uh, per- perhaps starting actually with how are the CRISPR technologies, so not the MIT, UC, Cas9 technologies in particular, but the, the broad CRISPR sub technologies, how are they being used in different industries? So you, uh, you've mentioned that the, those first two, they were bacterial and mammalian. I understand that they are also being used in agriculture. And last I checked, corn is not bacterial or mammalian. <laughs> well, so I use mammalian to simplify things. 
Right. CRISPR, the Broad MIT patent, is actually for what we call eukaryotic CRISPR. Eukaryo- eukaryote is a little broader, mm-hmm. right? So that's going to inc- include your plants, your insects, your zebrafish, your anything that isn't bacteria, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it's a broader issue than just mammals versus bacteria, right? But it, there isn't a third patent. It's MIT kind of claims all of eukaryotes. So yeah, you know, MIT, you need to go work with Broad if you're gonna go make new crops. And again, you know, what CRISPR can do for agriculture and livestock is astonishing, right? They are able to grow, uh, to manipulate the embryos of cows so that they do not actually grow their long horns so you don't have to amputate them. A little more humane for the cattle. Mm -hmm. A lot less injury. Yep. And a lot less ethical issues there than, say, editing human embryos, which is a whole other morass. Um, You know, so we have that kind of capability in those technologies. And so... When we talk about agriculture, I actually think that's going to be the most important next thing that CRISPR does in terms of how individual person just sort of living their lives is ever going to really encounter it. We're not going to see therapies soon, right? We're working on them, but that's not going to be for everybody. You and I are not going to see a CRISPR therapeutic that we're going to need for decades. It's it's just not safe and we have to prove that it is. But are you going to see, you know... Blight-resistant rice? Are you going to see uh, more robust corns? Soybeans? Sure. Especially since DuPont and Monsanto are involved. (laughs) (laughs) They know where the marketplace is. Oh, they do. (laughs) So how how have companies like DuPont and Monsanto, and there are hundreds of other companies out there, some names you would recognize and uh, some that you wouldn't, how have uh, companies been innovating? What is the business cycle with uh, these technologies? Well, so again, uh, the two of the major things that I have seen really are either, you know, they have gone this design around route. Some companies that basically say, I'm not dealing with Cas9 at all. I'm going to create, you know, I'm going to either find or use a new enzyme. I'm going to design around this. We'll create a crop that, you know, works with this particular system. More often, though, what you find is, well, we can always license. And what's beautiful about licensing is there are many, many ways to create licenses to whatever you need, even if the direct licensee is not willing to directly license to. (laughs) So DuPont, as somebody who is dominant in the agriculture space, right, who quite literally owns everything at this point, um, you know, including Donesco and Pioneer, basically said, all right, I kind of don't care how this is working. I need a license. They have enough market power to kind of make that work. Mm-hmm. And so they have a direct license from, from Berkeley. And then they created a patent pool with Broad to, collect, to, to basically pool both Broad's technology and DuPont's technology to license to other people. But mm-hmm. that's how DuPont was then able to get the MIT portfolio. Mm-hmm. So at this point, they're sitting pretty. They don't care. <laughs> they're going to do their thing. And again, I think in part, it's not just because they're so dominant in their field, but they're closer to a commercial product where this is going to become a problem mm-hmm. than anybody else. And if you don't think that, you know, Broad won't go sue DuPont <laughs> for a commercialized product they didn't license or UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. you've got another thing coming. Yeah, du- DuPont was able to get the patent pool because they are in such a strong position, but that also means that they have 
revenue and money that you can sue them for. So they're, they're a, a great target for patent infringement. Absolutely. Right. And they know it, too, because gosh knows that they are part of <laughs> they've been part of litigation for a long time themselves. They know mm-hmm. what they're dealing with. Yep. What what about other companies, other industries? How are they? So the other, the other big one I like to talk about and everybody else likes to talk about, I, I'm the one who actually often brings up agriculture because people kind of forget about it, but it's critical. Um, but the, the, the obvious one is medicine and health, mm-hmm. right? Everybody says, oh, you know, CRISPR is the holy grail. And to some degree it is, right? Because the last thing we had was gene therapy in the 90s. Right. And that was an instance where, okay, no, we didn't always understand exactly what was going on. Unfortunately, you know, a child died um, in an experiment. And that was enough to shut down basically the entire industry for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't really hear about gene therapy nearly so much. We still use it. It's still there. It's not like it's, it's, it doesn't exist, but it's not what it could have been. Mm-hmm. And so when CRISPR was first announced to the world, scientists immediately realized, wait, we might have an answer again. And it's one we don't want to destroy, right? And so all of a sudden, everybody became interested in how can we use CRISPR to make life better for people with major diseases, right? Mm -hmm. Because what I can do is I know what, for example, the BRCA1 gene looks like for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. If I know what it looks like, I can program a CRISPR tool to go find it and change it so that you get rid of the mutation. Or in sickle cell anemia, I can, again, I know, we know what that looks like. We know what that mutation looks like. I can use CRISPR to go change the mutation and make it a healthy cell again and breed those, put them back into the, the, the ill human being and have them not be ill anymore. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing. And so that becomes a huge deal. Now, as I mentioned, this is a lot further away from actual commercialization. We're still in sort of the, all right, you know, we're still working with it. Let's, you know, do some testing. Let's do some experiments. And, you know, especially with something with CRISPR, it's a bad look to go sue somebody who's like trying to cure a disease that hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, (laughs) suffer from. Like, nobody's really going to go do that. Again, you know, you think about, you know, Moderna and Pfizer, right? Like, you know, you didn't want to go sue the people who were creating the stuff, right? And they also wanted to provide it because then they look bad, right? So there's some business, there's some business uh, um, visibility (laughs) and marketing strategies that go on here too. Um, But because of that, they have some more leeway. So what they're doing is sort of they are kind of licensing around the technologies they started with. So most of the health and medicine companies are U.S.-based. In fact, they come from the universities that created CRISPR in the first place. So, of course, they're licensing around those technologies. Mm-hmm. But many, many fewer of them have licenses to both, both, both portfolios. And there may be a couple reasons for that. Like I said, one is they just don't care. Let's get this up and running. Let's make, you know, prove that it works. And then if I need to use something else, I will. Or by that time I'm done with this, maybe we'll have resolved all of this nonsense and then I'll figure out who I need to license from. So I've got some time. Or other times it's, I can do proof of concept, but, you know, maybe I'll find something else or I've moved faster beyond where we even are. And so I don't care. And I'm not going to, especially with a lot of startups, why spend money I don't, I don't necessarily have to spend. Mm-hmm. Right? So I have licenses to at least the one I think is going to be the most important. 
we'll see what happens. And so what you get is sort of more of these, you know, tight knit networks that are around specific patent portfolios, but not the whole thing. And so that's another completely viable IP strategy that people can take in order to say, look, this is important. I'm still going to invent around. I'm still going to invent in it. Let's find a safe, at least a safe way I can do this. How quickly did uh, we start to see companies innovating around these technologies? And when I say innovating, uh, developing innovations, incorporating these technologies, not uh, innovating to avoid infringing on the patents. <laughs> I, I like your de- your your your, your uh, careful definitions of innovating in different spaces. <laughs> um, immediately, CRISPR, I would say became something that everybody realized was important and could create commercial products around, you know, within the first couple of years. And I would say 2014 was probably the tipping point because that was the first year that um, we had had enough time to kind of test it. We were able to, scientists were able to kind of show CRISPR against the other tools and show how much better it performed. We got a sense of timing, right? Like CRISPR itself has just changed the speed of science. Right. You know, if you wanted to build a, a, a mouse model for a particular, uh, you know, a particular cancer mm-hmm. that you wanted to study in order to create a therapeutic for it, it would take, you know, that's somebody's Ph.D. thesis. It would take years. CRISPR turned that into three weeks and two people. Mm-hmm. Right. So now I have a model. I can build that a lot faster. And CRISPR helps with that, which is perfectly fine. Nobody's going to sue you over that because it's a research purpose. Right, unless you're in the Anka Mouse, but that's a different story. Um, and then we can use it again to then create solutions to the model we now understand. Right, and so CRISPR shows up in a lot of the different phases. So research, then then actually commercialization. But as soon as people could figure out how to do it, it was there. Especially in agriculture. I mean, we were we were we were making you know rice, you know blight resistant rice in in 2014. So based on the this pace at which we saw innovation, do these patent fights matter? This one, probably not. Um, at least for everybody else. Really matters for UC Berkeley and MIT. Mm-hmm. Right? B- billions of dollars. Billion, billions with a B. Yep, at stake. Billions of dollars, if not trillions, given what we're learning it can do and can't do. But... At the end of the day, it's again, people are finding these creative ways around the original technology because it's in part because it's so important um, and because they can all earn money off of this and, and because we can save lives uh, without hyperbole here. I'm literally not kidding. And so people basically saying, look, it's more important here to try the innovation, to get it out there than it is to you know deal with whatever morass is going on at the patent office. Some folks don't even know. Mm-hmm. At this point, they're like, all right, everybody else is using this. Why would I care? And most scientists, actually, if you ask them straight, they don't think about IP or patents at all. They're just going to do the thing. And that's for the legal department to deal with later. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think a lot of people just kind of ignore it. Um, in, in a sense, it sounds like this is the inadvertently perfect use of the IP system, the patent system, because as you started uh, uh, talking about why we have patents, the, the promise of those billions of dollars created an incentive, uh, so much of an incentive for multiple people to develop similar technologies at once. And then the fighting that they're engaged in over who developed it first has basically prevented them from actually enforcing the patent and has induced the innovation of uh, workarounds and additional patents. So society is getting all the benefit 
of that innovation without the cost. That, that's a, a kind of a perverse way of characterizing uh, how the IP systems worked here, but... Well, yes and no, right? Like, so, so I won't say there's no cost, right? We, like, we had to speed up, you know, finding all these other cases. We didn't know if they were going to be there, you know. And you know, eventually, I think all of that would happen. But as you said, I think I think it got pushed up. Um, so it's not no cost. We didn't know if we'd be able to find anything, and so you know, and all that still needs to get tested. And most of that isn't in the clinical trials yet, but. It is exactly how I like to think about innovation in the patent system. So when people say, oh, you know, patents are blocking, you know, especially on early technology, what you have to understand is in a lot of cases, those patents can be necessarily pretty narrow to what the entire market could be, mm -hmm. right? So, every, you know, sometimes they'll talk about patents as monopolies, and I don't fully believe that because as this is an instance of, CRISPR, the original CRISPR patents aren't blocking the entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. In fact, as you've pointed out, it's induced people to invent in broader areas, in other ways that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. And so, yeah, you know, maybe we're not inventing as much around CAS9 as we may be, but as I've pointed out, CAS9 might not even be the best option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if anything, it wasn't blocking, it, uh, it opened up the entire new ecosystem. Absolutely. And I think that's what happened is, is and now, now, you know, we'll have issues much like the smartphone, where all new industries are kind of like this, right? Where as we build and we interconnect, you know, everybody's going to have a little piece of it. And we're probably going to have some fights down the line about, you know, who owns what and do we need a pool and, you know, what kinds of standards are, are you know, should be there or not. Because CRISPR at the end of the day is sort of a biological platform, mm -hmm. right? We can move pieces around and, you know, folks will own different parts of it. But that's pretty natural, right? We've seen many, many, many examples of, you know, uh, industries, you know, going all the way back to the sewing machine, mm -hmm. right? Of trying to like figure out who owns what, how to get, how to get more innovation out of it, and how to move on. All right, that's not an indictment of a patent system. I think that's kind of a feature of it. Is let us all figure it out. Mm -hmm. And this will be, I think this will be similar. Yeah. So as we start wrapping up our conversation, um, what does the future look like? <laughs> Lots of innovation. I, I think I think that's really true. Um, yeah, I think I mean eventually this will settle one way or the other. I think uh, the patent office between MIT and Broad has kind of indicated over and over and over again that they really think there are two patents here. Whether you agree with how they got there or not is kind of a different issue. But I think that's right. There, there should be a bacteria patent, you know, the initial proof of concept, this is how it works, that's the thing that won the Nobel. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, all right, practical application of how do we use it in everything else, mm -hmm. right? There really are two. I, I do believe this. Um, and so I think at a certain point, UC just needs to settle. Uh, constantly appealing this, I think, is not going to help them. And they've now, they're actually responsible for, for developing some of the new design around CRISPR technologies. So they're going to earn plenty of money from that as well. And so I think this is just kind of going to go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. But what I do think is going forward, as people continue to invent, yeah, we're going to see, you know, the natural, the natural results of that, which will be more litigation, <laughs> patent litigation as people figure out, hey, I do want to earn money from this. This is valuable enough to me. Are you infringing or not? Yep. But you know, and it, that's inevitable. It, it's so often the case that when the payoffs to society are, are there, we'll we'll find a way. Absolutely. I, I like to I like to subtitle this paper Science Finds a Way. <laughs> you know, that is the 
perfect thought to uh, leave our conversation on. Science finds a way. Thank you, uh, Samantha Science, for taking uh, the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me, Gus. This is always a blast. I love being here. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.